Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, are you ready for some more trilogues between Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake? When we left our three merry trialoguers in the podcast before last, they just uh, had concluded their discussion about creativity and chaos. And in today's program, we're going to hear them talk about chaos and the imagination. Or, I should say, and imagination. We begin with uh, Ralph Abraham going into the history of the word and the concepts about chaos, and then Terence McKenna joins in with his thoughts about how chaos and imagination are connected. If you caught the last podcast from the Psychedelic Salon, you might remember Sheldon Norberg talking about how, as he progressed into the world of psychedelic medicines, his experiences began to shift from those focused primarily on pleasure to journeys that involved a deeper understanding of his consciousness. Well, at about a half hour into the trialogue you're about to hear, Terence McKenna begins to wax poetic about the lone fisherman on a tropical sea with his net where he's referring to the net of human imagination on an ocean of chaos. And the fisherman, of course, is the psychonaut sailing on the seas of consciousness. Now, I can't actually say that that's how things actually are, but it sure is a nice image to use when beginning a psychedelic voyage, don't you think? So now let's listen to Ralph Abraham and Terence McKenna discuss chaos and imagination. Chaos and the imagination. Now, someone uh, asked about the relationship between the chaos on plane three and the chaos on plane one, and I said there was sort of a resonant relationship. Uh, My appreciation of it had increased over these past years. I'm wearing the mask of chaos, but I'm not constrained to stick to the mathematical plane. So I should like now to speak about the chaos of ordinary life and the relationship of this chaos to the imagination. And along the way, I'll try to explain to you why I think chaos is the biggest thing since the wheel. I know, Terence, you have been, you've emphasized the importance of chaos and fractals in your own thinking and so on. So here will be either more of the same or maybe a further reason Um, to regard the chaos revolution as good news. Somebody uh, came to me last year and gave me a splendid quote about chaos, knowing that I was writing a a popular book on chaos, Guy on Eros. And it said, uh, all creation begins in chaos, progresses in chaos, and ends in chaos. (laughs) It's perfect for my book, especially considering that it comes from Homer. But I couldn't find it in Homer. I called a classics professor in my university, told me about all the lexicons and concordances where every single word in Homer. The word chaos never appears in Homer. It is known where it occurs for the first time, and it occurs for the first time in Hesiod. And he was kind of contemporary, more or less, of Homer, if a person at all 
around 800 BC, the beginning of the bardic tradition of ancient Greece. And in uh, Hesiod, this word chaos appears in a piece called Theogony, which is a theogony, that is to say, more or less a creation tale, but the stories of the creation of the gods and goddesses one by one. Well, they're not gods and goddesses, really. They're abstract principles. The three main ones are chaos, Gaia, and Eros. So in this way, thanks to this gentleman, Augustine de Melo, I'll be forever in his debt, I found out about the Hesiodic Theogony and the Orphic Trinity. Now, the meaning of chaos, the first time the word appeared in literature, has got nothing whatsoever, apparently, superficially, to do with what we mean by chaos in the English language and in ordinary life. It meant only to Hesiod, according to the lexicon, the gaping void left, uh, the gaping void, uh, sort of the gaping void between heaven and earth, out of which the creation came. So creation out of chaos, yes. But the chaos did not mean disorder or anything negative. It only meant this gaping void. Well, after reading in detail about the significance of this and the other, um, those proper nouns in Greek literature, beginning with a capital letter, they don't mean people or anything like people. They're more abstract principles, particularly in Homer and Hesiod, and in the Orphic literature, the Orphic hymns. So um, these chaos, Gaia, uh, Eros, are, I mean, it's a trinity, and it's associated with, they're the gods of, uh, or concepts of the primitive types. Chaos is a sky concept. And Gaia, of course, is an earth concept. And Eros is, Eros is actually a bisexual, it says in the literature, but that means what we would call an androgyne, you know, a double-sexed person uh, or concept. Whereas uh, chaos is definitely a feminine word as it appears in Hesiod. Uh, Gaia is feminine, chaos is feminine, and Eros has got this ambivalence. And they're the most abstract, earliest, proto-concepts of sky, earth, and the creative tension in between. Well, after understanding that, you look up, you, th you think of these different interpretations, sky, God concept, uh, the gap in the opening, and so on. When you look at the sky, the most obvious chief characteristic feature of the sky is the Milky Way. And it does appear to, as a kind of a gap between this and that, the two sides of the Milky Way. The sky, as understood by primitive people, is sort of like an Easter basket. And uh, you have the uh, ecliptic is around the wave, waist, kind of a snake. And all what is below that is considered the underworld. And then you have this handle across the top to hold it, which is the Milky Way. It's the royal road of the gods traveling between the underworld and the overworld. And this is it's uh, analyzed in extensive detail in a thick book called Hamlet's Mill. So uh, looking further then at chaos as the Milky Way, you see like the photograph that Terence has just showed, the, the prototypical chaos in the sense of randomness or disorder and, and so on. Understanding that, you can then connect the word with an earlier word concept or god or goddess meaning the same thing as what you visually see represented in the Milky Way itself, and that is in one of its uh, 
most popular representations, Tiamat, the goddess of chaos, from Enuma Elish, the uh, creation poem, the greatest epic poem of Babylonian literature, discovered in the library of Ashurbani Pal at Nineveh. Recent discovery. How to read the text, another recent discovery, 1950s, came out. Uh, maybe eight, 18, sorry, 1870 or so was the first uh, discovery. There was uh, this story of the origin of the gods and the creation of the world by Tiamat and Apsu, the god and goddess of chaos who lived in the water, one more sweet water and the other salt water. And they created then the whole pantheon and the whole world and so on. But eventually along came Marduk. Uh, Marduk was a younger generation of gods in the next generation. And there was a conflict between the older and the younger gods over how the world ought to be run. And apparently this conflict was taking place in the form of a social transformation, a transformation represented in the mythological by the demotion of Apsu and Tiamat from the pantheon of Babylon, the city Babylon, and the replacement by Marduk eventually became the god, Mr. Big of Babylon, around 2000 BC, coinciding with the sweep of patriarchy over that city propelled on a new type of war chariot with spoked wheels instead of solid wheels. Am I digressing too much? No, you've reached the wheel. <laughs> well, I've reached the spoke wheel and its association with, uh, is this accidental, I don't know, with the patriarchy and the fact that the wheel itself as a mathematical model is the paradigm of order. What we mean by order is either the thing is static, it's constant, its order is that of homeostasis, like more or less the temperature of the planet Earth, or it's regularly uh, changing in a circle, a divine mathematical form, according to Plato, as the planets were supposed to uh, move before uh, Kepler, who introduced the ellipse, fantastic transformation uh, punctual catastrophe in the history of consciousness. In short, according to this epic, Enuma Elish, Tiamat was killed in the most violent way, ripped to pieces, creating the world, creating a new order by our hero of Babylon, Mr. Marduk, who, also Bell, Bow, and so on. His New Year's celebration was um, honored at the New Year time all over old Europe, including at Stonehenge. At the New Year's festival, this epic poem was read. So annually was the reminder that chaos is bad, chaos has been killed, chaos has been replaced by order, an order associated with perfect periodic, uh, the wheel, the cycle, the perfect roundness, and, and so on. For 2,000 years, this poem was read every in, in a festival lasting 11 years called the Akitu Festival in Babylon with similar, almost identical festivals in Egypt, the Osiris Festival of Denderah, in Crete, the Dionysian ritual of the New Year, and in uh, 
Canaan in the Israelite festival surviving to this day, uh, Sukkoth, which begins next month. All of this, just to the importance of uh, the chaos revolution now, is that chaos has recovered from being demoted, from being banished to the unconscious in uh, around 2000 BC or so, from then up to now four or maybe five thousand years of the repression of chaos. I mean, chaos is to this day in our culture a bad word. We have to watch out for chaos. It ruins your love life. It has to be replaced by order. Scientists most especially hate it and so on. The fact that scientists of all people in the <coughs> temple of science, that Tiamat has to be accepted as a friend and replaced upon her throne. This is big news. Now, a little bit of lore about chaos. And now, about the imagination. Since we have developed this theme, I think, to all our satisfaction, uh, the connection between chaos and creativity, um, the creative as, uh, now we're connecting, we're, I'm going to try to make a direct link from chaos to the imagination, but it's completely unnecessary because we've already got the line from chaos to creativity and the line from creativity to the imagination. So we know that imagination is linked to chaos, the repression of imagination, the evil uh, shadow, the bad name of chaos, must therefore result in an impedance, a resistance to imagination. So uh, the creative imagination manifests uh, most profoundly by people like Euler, like Beethoven, like Wagner, this imagination should, of course, be functioning in everyone, but people have a resistance to their own creative imagination, and I'm suggesting that this resistance has a mythological base, a ritual base, and historically represents a very deep creode, a runnel in the morphogenetic field of a depth of three to five Waddingtons. <laughs> well, this is a unit that Rupert and I have worked out for measuring the depth of runnels. <laughs> so we've got a really, it's not only a personal failing if you find it difficult to write poetry when you sit down at your desk, you see. <laughs> Repeat what? <laughs> yes. So $30 or $25, as the case may be. Um, I could try another pass nearby, but I can't remember where we are. The Waddington. They just want to hear the word explained. Uh, <laughs> stealing a line from Tarrant's current book. There are habits. Habits, according to Rupert, are tunnels, they're, you know, deeply worn paths, labyrinths in the morphogenetic field. But habits is a habit. There's a habit of habits. That's the line I'm stealing from Terence's book. And the habit of habits has as a mathematical model these creodes, that's the attractor and the basin. The, uh, any, any, any state in the basin tends to the attractor. The attractor is the teleology of its habit. So the habit of habits is the habit of living in a landscape, 
a landscape with peaks and valleys where we have the tendency to go down the track to the attractor. Do I digress too far? So um, the habit uh, the, the habit of <laughs> habits is good. And some habits may be harmful. And one thing that creates a really deep runnel is the repetition for 11 days in a row once a year for two to 3,000 years. So that makes it a more serious matter. I mean, it's going to cost you a lot if you're going to a psychotherapist to get cured of your difficulties in creative imagination. It's going to be cheaper to fix up something that only started last year. <laughs> like thinking bisexuality is bad or something. Mm -hmm. So we felt that we wanted to quantify the depth of a runnel. And I'm not going to say it's proportional exactly to the number of days of the repetition and the frequency, the annual or the, you know, but there's, since Waddington introduced the concept creode in connection with embryology, as Rupert has explained, we thought it appropriate to take his name like uh, resistance, ohm, you know, there's Maxwell's Henry's, there's Faraday's, there's Gilbert's, and there's the Ampere's, Ampere's and Watts, mm -hmm. as in Watts Tower, and, <laughs> and Waddington, as in the depth of the creode. And for a really deep creode, I recommend for your consideration the New Year's Festival of Akitu together with its complete description, the subject of numerous books of length, 300 pages or so, by a fantastic field of scholarship known to few. We know about archaeology, anthropology, history, comparative religion, and so on. What about OT, Old Testament studies? The most voluminous, incredible field of the greatest scholarship, of the most minute details, all interdisciplinary has produced, among other things, a comparative study of New Year's festivals around the world. Amazing evidence of morphic resonance on a planetary scale in society before radio, before sailing ships. Um, a global manifestation, evidence of resonance with the Gaian mind on the same level as the distribution of these so-called Venus figurines of the Gravettian culture all over the planet. So uh, chaos and the imagination, the repression of chaos, the obstruction of imagination, the final uh, development over these thousands of years of serious and perhaps fatal ecological problems that we have today, the suggestion of the growth of a problem beyond all bound with nobody even trying to do anything about it as associated with a lack of imagination. And therefore, a, a, an artifact, a consequence of a cultural flaw that came in with the patriarchy. Now, I'm not saying that patriarchal culture is bad because it's patriarchal, although I would say that too. That belongs in another context. I would say, besides all that, it's bad because it's repressed chaos. It's made chaos bad. It's made Marduk good, the god of law and order. No. 
we would like to reject that so the planet can be saved, so life and love can be saved. And lo and behold, along comes an event as big as the development of the wheel, as positive, perhaps, as whatever negative was the discovery of the wheel, due to the fact that without getting rid of the wheel, we don't have to give up our automobiles. We are regaining chaos for potential partnership with the wheel. Chaos and order, chaos and cosmos, chaos and the imagination. <laughs> yes, well, chaos and the imagination and the notion here is uh, in everyday life, in the dimension in which we find ourselves. I would like to sort of expand on what Ralph has been saying with my own perspective on it. Uh, chaos is feminine. Chaos is intuitional. Chaos is, uh, um, has a very flirtatious relationship with language. And... Uh, the process of uh, creating a culture has to do with how we relate to this thing. And since we're talking about everyday life, it seems reasonable to talk about how we come to be in the kind of planetary mess that we're in and whether these extremely rarefied and abstract matters that we've been talking about can in any way be brought tangential to the burning planet. And I think that they can, uh, that the key is the power, number one, of chaos, which is feminine and beyond prediction and beyond uh, full rational apprehension, and uh, the imagination, which is... Uh, you know, our, our richest legacy, really the birthright that connects us to the divine is our poetic capacity, our ability to resonate with an idea of ideal beauty and to create uh, that which transcends our own understanding in the form of art through the imagination. So what, what does all this say about the situation we're in and how we got here. Well, I believe that the importance of the psychedelics is primary here and that it doesn't simply have to do with the fact that they synergize cognition, which they do do, and, and the synthetics as well as the natural ones, but it's deeper than that. It's that we have a secret history knowledge of which has been lost to us and only is now recoverable in the light of the kind of mindset that becomes possible to us if we accept the new paradigm. And what this secret history is and has to do with and how it relates to the Gaian mind and the world soul is that we, we are... Uh, the victims of a, an a 
instance of traumatic abuse in childhood as a species because a symbiotic relationship with the world-girdling intelligence of the planet, which was mediated through plants, through shamanism, I mean, it wasn't an abstraction, it was an experience, was uh, eventually broken up and disrupted by uh, progressive climatic uh, drying of uh, the Eurasian and African landmass. And so this is literally the fall into history, the expulsion from Eden, all these primary myths of a golden age found and lost have to do with the fact that once we lived in dynamic balance with nature, not as animals do, but as human beings only could, but in a way that we have now lost. Well, what, how have we lost it and what have we lost? How we have lost it is uh, the, the way in which these psychoactive compounds that were being brought into the diet were acting is they were psycholytic upon the formation of the ego. They literally suppressed the formulation of the, e the formation of the ego and promoted instead collectivist, tribal, partnership values which were operating intuitionally in a resonance relationship with the, the feminine vegetable matrix of the planet. In other words, nothing was verbalized, everything was felt, everything was intuited. And regularly at the new and full moon, these small groups of hunter-gatherers, later pastoralists, gathered and uh, took these hallucinogenic plants and dissolved boundaries and engaged in group sex and annealed, a new word that we've brought in here, annealed the irregularities that had cropped up in people's personal self-imaging in the interval since the last <coughs> session. And this kept everything uh, grounded on the plane of that which is important, i.e. the values of the group, of the species, of dynamic balance with the ecosystem, and so forth and so on. Well, when this was disrupted, and the supplies of these plants were diminished, and new religious forms arose, and the time between the great festivals grew longer and longer, uh, the ego begins to take hold first as a kind of cancerous aberration, but then quickly becoming a new style of behavior, which quickly then eliminates all other styles of behavior by suppressing access to the chaos. And this is the point I want to make, that there is between the ego and, and full understanding of reality a barrier, a problem, the fear of the ego to surrender to the fact of chaos. Now, no, uh, uh, in a pre-modern society, no woman could escape chaos because of the automatic birth script 
that would have women give birth over and over and over unto death in these societies. Women are biologically scripted into being much closer to this thing simply because there are certain episodes in the life of a female which are guaranteed to be boundary dissolving. And in fact, the whole psychology of feminine sexuality, which is the acceptance of penetration, is an entirely different relationship to boundary than the male relationship, which is you know, to, to be able to fulfill the potential to penetrate. So chaos is what we have lost touch with. This is why it has been given a bad name, because it is feared by the dominant archetype of our world, which is the ego, which clenches because its existence is uh, defined in terms of control. And the, the furious modeling process, and this will now sound like a knock on modeling, the furious modeling process that the ego endlessly carries out is an effort to fight the absence of closure. The ego wants closure. It wants a complete explanation. The beginning of wisdom I believe, is the ability to accept an inherent messiness in your explanation of what's going on. Because nowhere is it writ that human minds should be able to give a full accounting of creation in all dimensions and on all levels. You know, Wittgenstein had this idea that philosophy should be what he called true enough. And, and I think that's a great idea. Let's just make it true enough because that's as true as it can uh, be gotten. Well, so uh, the imagination is chaos. New forms are fetched out of this chaos. For me, the creative act is the letting down of the net of human imagination into the ocean of chaos on which we are suspended and the attempt to bring out of it ideas, to bring out of it, uh, you know, sometimes, and this is part, this is my model for the psychedelic experience, that it is the night sea journey, that it is the lone fisherman on a tropical sea with his nets and you let these nets down and uh, sometimes something tears through them that leaves them in shreds and you just row for shore and put your head under your bed and pray. And at other times, what slips through are the, the minutiae, the minnows of this ichthyological metaphor of idea chasing. And, but sometimes, you know, you actually can bring home something that is food, that is food for the human community that we can sustain ourselves on and go forward. So we haven't talked that much about art and aesthetics, but I think in the human world, uh, the, the, uh, the appetition is for beauty, to my mind, and this is another place where the Platonism shines radiantly through, you know, because Plato held that the good was the true and that both were the beautiful. And this is a very quaint 
idea from the point of view of modern philosophy, but I think uh, you know you f it's in the bones when you actually connect yourself up uh, to the planet. That's why chaos is capable of being the tremendous repository of uh, ordered beauty that it is, because there there is no chaos in the old definition that which is to say that which by any definition or any test is found to be disordered that is just a kind of uh, of uh, an, a, a hell notion a kind of hypostatization of an ultimate state of disorder but nowhere in in the world that is deployed through space and time do you encounter that instead what you encounter is embedded order upon embedded order this fractal uh, this fractal thing and then finally uh, for me the imagination is the goal of history I see culture as an effort to uh, Re literally realize our collective dreams and you know it's on a very crude level when it's you make your mask and I make my mask and then we dance around together and it's even at a very crude level when it's you design your shopping mall and I'll design my world trade center and we'll put them on the same piece of real estate but we're coming now into through media, I believe, through virtual reality and human-machine integration and this kind of thing, into a, a situation where the imagination is going to be something that we uh, can share, that the path of mind through its own meanderings will become something that can be recorded and played back. We will have the possibility of living in our own past or, uh, you know, creating and trading realities as art and art as life lived in the imagination is the great archetype which rears itself up at the end of history life in the imagination the imagination is this auric field which surrounds the transcendental object at greater and greater depth as you approach the transcendental object. And as we now close distance with it, all, uh, all of uh, our, our cultural expression, all of our self-awareness is taking on this curiously designed quality. I mean, you must have noticed this, that the world is very heavily designed in a way that it never was before. Uh, morphogenetic fields of great size and scope, which our international schools of architecture and design touch whole continents. Entire cities are given certain uh, ambiances. This is the summoning of the imagination into the human scale. It's like a god that we wish to call down and draw to earth. I mean, this is why William Blake called it the divine imagination, because it is the four-gated city. It is the flying saucer. We are on a journey to meet uh, this great attractor, and as we close distance with it, it is more and more a multifaceted mirror of our images of beauty. So it's like an ascending learning curve 
that becomes asymptotic, and at that point you're face to face with uh, a mystery, a living mystery that is within each and all of us. It's the imagination that argues for the divine spark uh, in human beings. It's absolutely confounding if you try to uh, get biology to produce it for you as a necessary quantity. It isn't that. It's a, an emanation from above. It is literally a, uh, a descent of the world soul into all of us. We then become the atoms of the world soul and our channel to it is by closing our eyes and obliterating our immediate personalized space-time locus and falling into the imagination, which is running like a river through all of us uh, endlessly, driven by the, you know, the hydraulic momentum of the cataracts of chaos, which usher into the creativity of the imagination. I mean, these river metaphors are, are just endlessly applicable to this. The flowing of forces over landscapes, the pressure of chaos on the imagination to create creativity, and it's looping back into the same. I mean, these, uh, these things are the icons for the world that uh, wants to be. But the key is surrender and dissolution of boundaries, dissolution of the ego, and a trust in uh, the love of the goddess, which transcends rational understanding. There will come a moment which will be an absolute leap into space, and we will simply have to have the faith that there is something waiting there, because the dominator style has uh, left us no choice. So that's my wrap on that. The cataracts of chaos. <laughs> they roll off his tongue, you see, which obviously has a direct connection to the cataracts of chaos. So, well, we are progressing uh, toward a dialogue now is the idea. <clears throat> but um, there's so many different ideas to respond to here. I'll try to limit myself to one or two. Um, I'd like to try to uh, connect these up, these two statements. And uh, I think the, uh, the key, the intersection, is the Eleusinian mysteries. And uh, here's a, this is not uh, validated by all the scholarly research, just a speculation. It was generally supposed by historians that there's sort of a straight line from Babylon uh, to Ugarit to Minoan Crete to Mycenae to Athens and so on. So it was supposed that there's a cultural diffusion, including the festivals, which, as I said, are very similar. Um, but in the Babylonian festival, you already had by 2000 BC the extensive domination of the male god of order and uh, the patriarchy and so on. Whereas in Minoan Crete, you find, according to the evidence of the excavators and all who have examined the artworks that remain, 
an outstanding, uh, a long-lasting fluorescence of partnership culture with uh, no domination by a male god. So there is a little question mark there as far as the diffusion from Babylon to Crete. Instead, there's a, a complementary theory of a renewal of the partnership concept in Crete coming from India in the early days of Cretan culture in 3000 BC. In any case, there is established that there is the diffusion from Crete to Greece. And the last remainder of the Cretan culture, which is a very interesting one, it must have been sort of the, the last vestige of the Garden of Eden. We're talking about a tremendous happiness and uh, uh, fluorescence of beauty in all aspects of, of life. Um, the Eleusinian mysteries and the related mysteries of Plua were said uh, to be identical to those in Crete, which were celebrated publicly. So they became secret after the patriarchal takeover by the Mycenaeans in Crete and the exportation of this dual culture uh, to Greece, where you had kind of the overworld and the underworld, the conscious and the unconscious, and the, the goddess and the partnership of gods and goddesses of Crete continued to exist in, in Greece, but uh, as this accepted but still unacceptable secret festival. And among the aspects of the Cretan and Eleusinian Plua festivals are the uh, sexual rites and psychedelic rites uh, celebrated in a uh, highly specified ritual format and on an annual basis. So it is a speculation on what happened to the cataracts of chaos in the hands of the patriarchy. This is, I don't know, I think you guys know a lot more about this than I do, but this, uh, our com conversation has <laughs> stimulated this speculation. In the patriarchy, because of the patrilineal aspect, you have to know who is the father of the children, not just who is the mother. And therefore, monogamy is very important, and this was in a strong conflict with the ritual. And uh, so sooner or later, that aspect had to, had to go. I, I don't see that there's any, I don't understand the direct uh, connection between the patriarchy and the repression of chaos. But I can see the simple explanation for the repression of the other aspect of these rites that were celebrated together, that somehow, I don't know if they go together, of sexual license and, and uh, the psychedelic ritual. Anyway, the Eleusinian mysteries disappeared, and what we are left with is uh, this control of Marduk order, the um, constipation of the imagination, and in our fantasy it's consequent the, uh, the world problems. Now there are some open questions here I'm not addressing, maybe you can consider. One is, um, if we consider the practical aspect of what we're talking about in these world problems, it seems like a main motor of world problem is the population explosion. So I, I don't know, would it, would, do you think it would be true if we had a partnership society instead of 
a patriarchal, a dominator society, would we still have the population explosion? That's what I don't understand. Can I ask you, you said that you didn't understand the suppression of, uh, of other parts of the, of the uh, partnership society other than the orgies which made, which confused knowledge about who was the father? Yeah, you see the New Year's festival continued on to our day, but these aspects of it were removed and replaced with, uh, um, in all cases, with the recital of the conquest of chaos by the god of order. Well, and part of his conquest, I assume, was the elimination of sexual license as well as psychedelic ritual. Don't you think it's because the ego uh, is basically a control trip? And so the, the ego, the person who has the ego, becomes the center of the space in which they're operating in. They control the women, assuming it's a man. They control the resources. And they... Uh, vigilance is the key. It reminds me of the national motto of Albania, which is, fear it is that guards the vineyard. <laughs> now, <laughs> so this, this is definitely an egocentric dominator view. And so the fear of the psychedelic experience is quite literally the fear of losing control. And even if you approach dominator types today and say, wouldn't you like to try some psilocybin or something? Say, I'm afraid I would lose control. This is the great... Uh, and you, it's not important to maintain control if you are not in control in the first place by definition. In a tribal society, for instance, where there is no property and where there are no assigned sleeping places, Everyone behaves according to something which we can only call whim. <laughs> but whim has replaced, you know, mine, yours, my spot, your spot, my food, your food. And uh, the psychedelic uh, thing dissolves this and makes it all very threatening and throws it all up for grabs and then you have to rely on group values and not yourself. As I was listening with you to Terence McKenna just now, I was taken by his rap about sharing imagination and playing back imaginings when I thought of it in context of his first and I guess maybe his only encounter with others through the 3D avatar world that, that Bruce Damer and Terence's son Finn and some others created to host Terence's first online workshop. I believe that most of that world is still preserved somewhere in cyberspace and I'll try to track it down and link to it from our webpage with the program notes of this podcast on it. Not long ago, I saw a homemade video that was taken on uh, Terrence's end of that event, and it was really cool to see how almost childlike he was as he interacted with others in cyberspace. It was almost as if you could see the wheels turning in his mind with all kinds of new ideas about the possibilities that these alternative worlds present for the evolution of our consciousness. 
Sadly, uh, that event took place only about a week or so before the seizure that revealed the fact that uh, Terrence had a very large mushroom-shaped tumor in his brain. What an amazing person he was. What an amazing mind. And uh, thanks to a lot of people and the advent of podcasting, all of us here in the Psychedelic Salon can still hear the words of the irreplaceable Terrence McKenna, along with the wonderful thoughts and comments by Ralph Abraham, Rupert Sheldrake, and a lot of others here in the Psychedelic Salon. One other thing I want to point out is that while there is only a brief mention of Ralph Abraham's book, Chaos, Gaia, and Eros, if you haven't had the chance to read it yet, I highly recommend it. And if you're worried that the chaos part deals with math, well, don't worry. You won't find any equations in it. Instead, you'll find a very readable and concise history of some esoteric knowledge that you might have missed in school. Also, I want to thank all of you who sent emails this week. It's always nice to receive your comments and suggestions, and it truly warms the cockles of my heart when you say such nice things about these podcasts. You know, it's interesting uh, how your emails sometimes seem to arrive with comments that are right in line with something that I was thinking just a few minutes before I checked my mail. For example, uh, this morning I was thinking that this new schedule of putting out three podcasts a week might be a little too much. I know I'm not getting a lot of other things done that I want to do, and I was worrying that maybe I'm overloading your MP3 inboxes. And then uh, comes a note from a listener calling himself Wooden Chip, who writes from what he says, the bald prairies of Saskatchewan, to say that, and I quote, It's these small-dose hits of psychedelic info that keep my far-out bone in tune and offer balance in this consciously constricted Western culture. Well, I sure hear you there. And, well, wouldn't ship you've convinced me to keep up these three-a-week podcasts a while longer, at least until this first series of Trialogues is all online. And since we're only on the first side of tape three right now, it looks like we've got at least seven more weeks to go to finish up the 89 and 90 trialogues. And of course, that still leaves quite a few more to go, since they continued holding these interesting conversations until the summer of 1998. And hey, I love your handle, by the way. I have a special affinity for wooden ships myself, since I had the great good fortune to do a Pacific crossing in a square-rigged wooden sailing ship. And if you're in... That kind of a trip, too. Well, you can see some of my photos from those days on my website at matrixmasters.com. Or you can also find the entire listing of all 65 podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. Just go to matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. Also, I received some good advice from Chris, who suggested something that John M. also told me a few months ago, and that is that I should consider putting up this series uh, of podcasts on BitTorrent. And I promise I'm going to follow up on that soon, and maybe with a little of Chris's help once he finishes exams. And good luck on the exams, Chris, and same to the rest of you who are out there cramming right now. Hey, uh... Shouldn't you all be studying right now instead of listening to this podcast? (laughs) But I shouldn't talk. One of the reasons I'm not getting very far along on my website revisions, as I think I should have, is that I've gotten hooked on the podcast from the Cannabis Podcast Network. I just learned about them from KMO a few weeks ago, and he hosts the Sea Realm Podcast. Now I'm going back and catching up on all of their programs. Not only is there a, a lot of 
good information being podcast on the Cannabis Network, but uh, their programs are also a lot of fun to listen to, particularly if you don't always have close friends to share a little smoke with, or a little vapor, as the case may be. And just to give you a feeling of how upbeat their programs are on the Cannabis Podcast Network, as soon as I'm uh, done here and sign off, I'm going to play a little clip from one of Queer Ninja's podcasts, uh, which are titled The Sounds of Worldwide Weed, where you can hear some uh, really good world music, a nice wide variety of it. Now, I haven't checked with Queer Ninja to see if this is okay, because from what I understand, he's right now recovering from a flood that ravished his remote Scottish home. So I I don't want to add to your email queue right now, Queer Ninja, and I hope you're recovering from your flood. The the sound bite, though, that I'm going to play is actually sort of a, a plug that Queer Ninja did for the entire group of programs on their network. But his happiness and enthusiasm for life, I believe, would come out even if he was just reading a telephone book. (laughs) I think you'll see what I mean in a minute. And as I try to do in every podcast, I want to thank my friends Jacques Cordell and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for letting me use some of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. I hope you guys are having a great year end. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? This is Queen Ninja, and this is uh, The Sounds of Worldwide Weed, episode 4, man. Welcome along. This is uh, a big Yellow Mug edition. It's quite a special edition. I want to share with you some of the journey of my very good friend that's uh, traveling in Africa, and this is coming up in the second half of the show. Um, in this half, though, I just want to say a great big hello to everyone who's emailed and left comments and from around the world, man. Hello to Italy, Spain, United Kingdom, Japan, East, West, and Southern United States, uh, Canada, Bolivia, and Romania <laughs> big hello to Romania I've never even been there man <laughs> hello <laughs> um, anyways anyways music in this half of the show featuring artists from Sibumatu Bluetooth uh, Bedouin Soundclash and uh, coming up after that we're going to have some musical accompaniment uh, when we take a little peek into a vast journey accompanied by some tunes from Eastern Africa um, and beyond and always listeners emails and comments which is my personal favorite part <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like to get all fluffy, you know me, get some nice emails from people, man, so drop me a line, man, you know the drill. My email address is queenninja at delphine.co.uk, and you can also leave a comment there on the website, like, uh, good, I think it's three listeners, the last three left some comments there on the website at delphine.co.uk, home of the Dopecast, home of the Sounds of World I Read, and home of Mr. Bud's Grow Shop, so... Diverse programming to compensate for, you know what I mean, the lack of uh, mainstream coverage that our people get. <laughs> you know what I mean, that's good old stoner people get, man. And it's beautiful for us to come together like this. It's, it's great, man. I have so much fun making this show every week. You know, I really don't know what I would do without it, though. So. so, with that in mind, I want to get this show kicked off, man. And the first track, this is an Owl Town classic. I got lots of feedback from Little Fluffy Clouds last week.